For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me on this Monday as we kick off a brand new week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to follow me on social media. My Instagram account is at Monica Crowley underscore. Again, at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and Truth Social at Monica Crowley. Also, you can send me an email about this show to Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. I read all of the emails that come in. Keep them coming. We got tons of them and we're going to get to some later in the show. So I really appreciate you guys so much. All right. As we kick off this new week in Biden's hellhole, I want to deal with one of the greatest menaces to America in the history of the Republic. And what makes this menace particularly disgusting is that it is a homegrown threat, an internal dark force, not a threat that came from abroad, but one that gave rise from within. I'll tell you what it is in just a moment. Also today, a very special conversation with my good friend, the legendary editor, Tina Brown, about her brand new book on a subject I find fascinating, the British royal family. The Queen is having her Platinum Jubilee in about a week. I think it begins on June 5th. Uh, to celebrate 70 years on the throne, she is the longest-serving British monarch in history. And she is also the OG man. She is the original girl boss. 
but her family, oi, what a hot mess. Okay, and when we talk to Tina, I'm going to tell Tina and you which member of the British royal family I grew up wanting to marry. And if he had married me instead, the British royal family would be in a much better place. Also, do not get me started on Meghan Markle and that dope that she married. Actually, no, do get me started because I do have a few things to say about that. That's fire coming up. Oh, and speaking of fire, I have to mention, I have got a very special show coming up for you on Wednesday this week. I am going to talk with the brilliant and brave Naomi Wolf about her new book and how the global predators, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, the World Economic Forum, WEF, which is meeting right now, this week, as we speak, plotting new and interesting ways to make you sick, make you take a shot, strip your freedoms away. They're meeting right now in Davos. And the World Health Assembly that's moving on all of these things that we have been talking about, the amendments to the international health regulations, uh, they're plotting forward to move ahead with this pandemic treaty, all of these things to strip away your ability to make your own decisions about your own health, your family's health, and your nation's health. They're all meeting now, right now, this week. Don't think it's a coincidence that you're starting to see monkeypox pop up all over the world, they're meeting now and they're coming up with new and sinister ways to destroy Western civilization, freedom, and you. Plus Bill Gates, let's not forget about him. So they're all out there and and Naomi Wolf has written this brilliant new book talking about how, first of all, talking about the previous two and a half years and what they have done to us in terms of stripping out our humanity, our freedoms, how we all just sort of gave it up, right? Like an easy girl at the prom, we all just gave it up. But also she talks about how they're accelerating their great reset and what it means for you. So on Wednesday, you're not going to want to miss, well, first of all, you should not miss any Monica Crowley podcast, but on Wednesday, It's going to be a very, very thoughtful and important conversation. The Monica Crowley, Naomi Wolf interview on Wednesday. Okay, let's kick off today with the Monica memo. One of the greatest menaces in American history still walks among us. This menace is dark, calculating, selfish, deceitful, and evil. It's not a foreign threat. It's a homegrown darkness, which makes it even worse. I'm talking, of course, of Hillary Rodham Clinton. I've been talking about this menace that is Mrs. Clinton for years. And with each passing year, I hope and pray that she will fade away and leave us all alone. After so many years, 40, really, 40 years, four decades of tormenting us, starting from Yale Law School, then to Arkansas, and then on the national scene. And I keep praying that she's going to go away. But no, she never really goes away like a bad foot fungus or COVID-19. She just keeps popping up, offering her opinion when literally no one cares what she thinks anymore. No one. But she keeps popping up, injecting herself into politics or policy. 
She's like the girl no one wants to talk to at a party. Remember that character from Saturday Night Live, played by Cecily Strong? The obnoxious, invasive girl at the party who's like chewing gum and she's, she's all up in your face while you're trying to talk to someone else? That's Hillary Clinton. And yet she keeps butting in, forcing herself into the national conversation. Because like Glenn Close's insane character in Fatal Attraction, Mrs. Clinton will not be ignored. Mrs. Clinton is eaten alive by two things. One, that she never became president and never will be. And two, that she lost not once but twice to men. Man, that's got to really gall her, right? That she lost to men. She lost to men who had a better handle on the political landscape and the American people than she did. Barack Obama and Donald Trump. But it was losing to Trump that really made her go mental. She truly lost her mind over the possibility of losing to the orange man the blue-collar billionaire from New York who was crass and vulgar to her and her crowd, the political neophyte who had never done any of this before, when she had busted her tail for years and put up with Bill and the whole thing, she could not stand losing to someone who had never done any of this before. This she could not countenance. After all, like I said, She has spent her entire adult life preparing to run for and be president. How on earth could she lose to a guy who had never done politics before? Didn't he know that it was her turn? Didn't he know that she had sacrificed everything, including her dignity, by hitching her future to serial skirt-chasing dog, Bill? Didn't Trump know that he needed to make way for her, the deep state queen of victimhood? Well, no, he didn't know it. And if he did, he didn't care because it was his time too. Donald Trump doesn't make way for anybody, especially when it comes to serving America. The Clintons and the entire deep state are not about serving you or America. They're about serving themselves. Trump saw a mess after eight years of Obama And he said, I'm going to step up and do this. So he thought it was his turn. He saw it was his turn, not out of a sense of entitlement, but out of a sense of duty to the country. So Trump made the mistake of running in 2016 and winning the Republican nomination and then, heaven forfend, winning the presidency. This could not stand not for Mrs. Clinton personally, for all the reasons I just laid out, but also because She had a need, not just a need for speed or a need for power, which consumes her, but a need to distract from her email private server controversy because she was breaking laws all over the place with that one, and she didn't want that to torpedo her, so she needed a quick distraction. But it also could not stand for the deep state that she carries the banner for. So they set out to frame and destroy Donald Trump, the interloper, the man who dared to run from the outside, the one that they could not control, 
the one who would interrupt their great reboot, dragging America to communism. This interloper had to be undermined and destroyed. But how? As they were thinking about this, how were they going to do it? It couldn't be a standard issue dirty trick, like sending a hundred pizzas to his campaign headquarters and making them pay. Or even a more intense smear, like a sex scandal. No, they tried all of that and nothing worked. Nothing stuck to Donald Trump. No, for this project, they needed to bring out the big guns of the deep state. It needed to be a far more sophisticated smear complex, involving fellow deep state operatives in the CIA, the DOJ, the FBI, the Obama White House. They realized if this were to work, she needed to go major league. And so she did, with the help of other deep state villains, Obama, Biden, Brennan, Comey, Clapper, Yates, Strzok, Page, and so McCabe, and so many others. They came up with this, and they executed the framing of Donald Trump as a Russian asset, a stooge of Putin, an American traitor. Of course, all of this is what they themselves were doing, selling out and cashing in with our enemies. But they deflected that away from themselves and onto Trump. You can always tell what they're doing and how dark and evil they are by the projection that you see. Whatever they accuse our side of doing, it's what they themselves are doing. It's classic projection, and it worked because they had help in amplifying the true big lie See, when they accuse Trump of talking about the 2020 election fraud and all of that, oh, that's the big lie. No, again, that's projection. They are accusing Trump of doing something that they themselves are doing, stealing elections and and this big lie, the Russia hoax. This is the true big lie. But they had help in amplifying it from their wingmen in the press. From Rachel Maddow to the New York Times and Washington Post, which won Pulitzer Prizes for spreading the true big lie. They should return those prizes, by the way. But they won't, because they have no honor or shame or any journalistic principles. In fact, a lot of these reporters actually got promoted. But once they had the lie and knew the press would run with it, because of course they would. They're all on the same side. Once they had all of the parts, it all just fell into place. Until now. Now, special counsel John Durham is starting to bring indictments, and the first trial of the Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman is underway. Of course, the press is totally ignoring it uh, because they only perpetuate big lies. They don't actually tell you the truth ever. Um, But the secrets of the true big lie are starting to come out. Late last week, we got the bombshell testimony from Mrs. Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook. What grown man goes by Robbie? Anyway, here's what he blurted out in open court. He said that Mrs. Clinton personally approved uh, the dissemination of the lie that somehow there was a, a computer server that was linked to a Russian bank and it was coming out of the Trump organization, so there was a tie there. Mook blurts out in open court that, yes, Mrs. Clinton personally approved passing off that lie to a reporter. Okay, 
Well, of course she did. Of course she agreed to have the lies sent to reporters. That was the plan. She was the lie. She created the lie and then made sure the lie got spread far and wide. Through her deep state network, they sent it over to the CIA, which looked into it and dismissed it as bogus right away, as did the FBI. But they kept going with it. Why? Because when Peter Strzok picked it up after an FBI analyst looked at it, and within one hour, the FBI analyst said, yeah, this is bogus. (laughs) This is not true. There's nothing here. Peter Strzok picked it up and ran with it. He revived it, as did tons of lying politicians like Adam Schiff and Swalwell and all of those characters and the propaganda press. Rachel Maddow was every night wall-to-wall. They spied on a presidential candidate, then undermined and tried to destroy a sitting president for a few basic reasons, separate and distinct from Mrs. Clinton. 2016 was supposed to be Hillary versus Jeb. She was supposed to win, of course, but a Jeb presidency wouldn't have been much different, right? I mean, it's a uni party. It's all the same. It would have been the same swamp sellout. Both sides knew this. Donald Trump was the one thing that they did not anticipate and could not control. So they spied on him and lied about Russia to try to destroy him. If this isn't treason... I don't know what is. And as far as the Mueller investigation goes, that was a setup, a farce from day one. You know, on social media since Friday, since this Robbie Mook story broke, and all of these people are out there going, $42 million in the Mueller investigation, two years, why didn't he find this? Come on. He was in on it, guys. The Mueller investigation was the cover-up. Once Trump was sworn in, they lost control of the government and all of the evidence. So they needed to buy time and bury the evidence. So they enlisted James Comey at the FBI and Trump's first Attorney General Jeff Sessions. How dumb was that guy? Stupidly went along with appointing a special counsel. Maybe they had dirt on him and held, held a gun to his head. Who knows? But they scored big when they got Mueller, a semi-senile deep stater who would cover it all up at least for two years. Score. All of this is treason. The press isn't covering it because they're still in protective mode. But secrets never stay secret forever. And even if we don't get convictions here, because like I said, the jury pool has, it's all Democrats, it's in Washington, D.C., the judge is an Obama appointee, the jury's got Hillary Clinton donors on it, for God's sakes. So even if we don't get convictions here, the evidence will be part of the public record. This is what Durham is doing. He's airing a lot of this out. And it will be there for all of us to see. It may not get reported, but it will be there. Mrs. Clinton likely will never be held accountable. In a fair and just society, that deep state monster would spend the rest of her miserable life rotting in federal prison. But she won't. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I I think I'm right about it. 
She might have to wait to meet her maker for the judgment. In the meantime, I am sure that she is plowing through the wine cellar and throwing lamps aplenty around that Chappaqua mansion. Bill can't believe he's still ducking flying lamps after all these years. Judgment, in one way or another, comes for us all, Mrs. Clinton. For us all. We're coming right back. We're going to change gears. And we've got a very special, fun interview about another prominent woman in power. Only this one is the one Rodham wanted to be, but could never be. Sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy And you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, I am so delighted to welcome my dear longtime friend, Tina Brown. Tina, of course, is the legendary editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, among others, and a New York Times bestselling author of The Diana Chronicles, which is a brilliant biography of Princess Diana, which I absolutely loved. And her latest bestseller is a sequel of sorts called The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the turmoil. Hi, Tina. Welcome. Thank you so much for that lovely greeting, Monica. Thank you. Well, of course. And congratulations on another masterful look at the British royal family, which always gives you plenty of material to work with. As you said at your book launch party, and I was so delighted to attend, you said, uh, God save the queen and save her from her children, <laughs> which is, was a brilliant way of putting it. So I cannot put this book down, The Palace Papers. It reads like a page-turning novel with the impeccable research that you do, Tina, and the inside scoop on a whole range of things. So I want to get into all of it. But before we do, I know that you're heading to London for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne, longest serving British monarch. It's just extraordinary. Um, What do you think her state of health is? I think she came out over the weekend and she was looking as dynamite as ever. 
Well, her health has been really iffy. And that, I mean, for the first time in her life, actually, the Queen, who has robust health, I mean, mainly because she rides every day, she tramps the moors, she is the healthiest woman you could possibly imagine with amazing stamina. But now she is, you know, 96. And it is beginning to show. And she doesn't like it showing because, uh, you know, she's never had to show any kind of infirmity. She is becoming very infirm. You know, she clearly probably needs a wheelchair, which to her is anathema. She doesn't want to be seen in it. And she is frail. There's no doubt about it. Her health is not good. It was a source of great delight to everyone when she came out this weekend, suddenly looking great. And everybody thought, thank God, you know, she's not fading fast on us, which had been really the worry over the last few weeks. Well, you know, Tina, as you well know, I worked with President Nixon during the last years of his life. And Mrs. Nixon used to get very sick. And then she would come back stronger than ever. So we used to joke that Pat Nixon was like a cat and had nine lives. And I think that also applies to Her Majesty the Queen. She is the ultimate badass, Tina. She is the ultimate girl boss. So we wish her well and we hope to see her throughout the the Jubilee events. Okay, so first of all, I have to tell you, and you are my long and dear friend, and you know this already, but I have to tell the audience as well, your biography of Princess Diana is one of my all-time favorite biographies. First of all, I'm a Diana maniac anyway, but your biography of her called the Diana Chronicles is just brilliant. And now you've come out with another chapter on the story of the British royals. It's called The Palace Papers. Why did you decide to take it on again? I really felt that 25 years after Diana's death was the right time to look at this family saga and see how had they recovered from that cataclysm that was Diana, the scorched earth of those years, the tragedy of the car crash, the you know, the boys losing their mother, uh, the, the scramble for Charles to try to kind of get his reputation back, essentially, from being seen as the bad figure in that marriage. And the whole kind of evolution now of the monarchy ever since, it seemed like exactly the right moment to be doing it with the Queen now in her twilight years. You know, the Palace Papers picks up, as you say, right after Diana's tragic death, which literally the entire world mourned. What struck you about those initial chaotic years? Well, the main thing was sort of trying to level, uh, you know, the, the royal's new reality, which was, you know, there was a real upheaval after Diana died, as we all remember. You know, the the, the queen for the very first time in her career uh, didn't get it really right when Diana died. Uh, the public wanted to see her in London. She stayed in Balmoral for very good reasons that, you know, her, her she wanted to be with her grandsons, William and Harry, who'd lost their mother, and she felt her place was in Balmoral with them. But the, the public wanted her in London, and there was a huge uproar where, where they say, like, where is our queen? And a sense that she wasn't showing emotion. And, of course, the queen's whole way has been never to show emotion. She... She, her whole ethos is to not emote. Suddenly she was required to emote. It was complete anathema to her, really. And she got through that period with enormous difficulty and remained shaken by it, actually. I mean, the palace people around her um, often referred to that period as the revolution, which was quite fascinating, really, because they saw it as such a moment of accountability. And the queen herself, the mantra that she used to say in the palace at that period for the next you know, 10 years was never again. And by that, she meant never again are we going to have somebody come into this family who doesn't understand 
that they are there to serve the monarchy, to serve the crown, and somehow develops a kind of separate power base of celebrity, of excitement around them, which actually detracts from rather than supports the monarchy. Because, you know, everybody but the queen is really scaffolding in that family. They're there to uphold her. And if they don't get the memo, as it were, that that's what they're doing, it's hugely disruptive uh, for the whole hierarchical system of the monarchy, essentially. So that was really her major concern and everyone's concern and how to kind of get things sort of ready for Charles one day to take over because Charles had been utterly besmirched, obviously, by, you know, the failure of the marriage to Diana, the terrible circumstances of her death, the sense that he'd always been in love with this other woman, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, and that, you know, because of that, Diana was extraordinarily unhappy. And in a way that meant that, you know, he was sort of the reason why she died young. So it was a very tough situation for them to face, but they worked their way out of it. And actually, you know, slowly and assiduously, their campaign was, let's be boring again. Let's be boring. <laughs> let's be safe. Let us do our jobs. Let us just, you know, buckle down and work and do our engagements. And they did. And Charles, meanwhile, worked very hard to try to rehab Camilla's image, bring her out of the shadows, which he managed to do, and gradually get the public to accept her. So all of that work was done, really, in the first 10 years. Then they had uh, a great patch because out of the shadows emerges, you know, William and Harry. And the two princes, of course, were the massive assets of the House of Windsor. Handsome, attractive, relatable. Uh, They had their mother's, you know, emotional uh, sort of quotient, charming. I mean, they had everything. And William, when he was at actually at university, was such a heartthrob. I mean, he was like a David Beckham figure in in England. And so everything seemed to suddenly look up because everyone could follow the romances and the excitements of of the princes. And of course, William met Kate Middleton at university, and it was a wonderfully satisfactory kind of the way it worked out. By the time that William married her in 2011, you know, she had really had 10 years to know what it was going to be like to be his wife and has proved to be absolutely adored by the British public and to be really understand what it takes to serve the crown. And she has done so with immense grace and beauty and aplomb. So they had that great success. And Harry serving in the army, 10 years in the military, going to Afghanistan, you know, wonderful imagery for the monarchy. But then, as it tends to do with the royal family... (laughs) It never lasts. Okay, I want to stop you there, Tina, because we're going to discuss Meghan Markle and and Harry in the next segment. Um, Because when the Queen said never again, after the dynamic celebrity, global celebrity of Princess Diana that just set the world on fire, she said never again, but here comes Meghan. I want to hold on that for a minute, because I want to touch back to uh, after Diana's death. And this, this feeds into what you write about, about Prince Harry. We always saw Harry as the rebel of the family. But I always wondered, Tina, how much of that was a function of being so deeply wounded, so young by the loss of his mother, you know, him acting out, the Nazi costume, all of that stuff for attention, for love, versus how much of it was a function of him being the second child, in other words, the spare in an heir and a spare where all the pressure was off of him because he'd never be king. Well, actually, a combination of both those things. I think as we've seen, and that's what's so interesting about this royal family saga, is the way you see themes repeating themselves. The second son has always done badly because the fat or or, or um, daughter, as we saw with Princess Margaret, who was in a sense also the wayward 
the wayward, uh, uh, you know, one of the duo with her sister Elizabeth, there is a sense of aimlessness about the second, because frankly, you know, they're expected to be as perfect in their demeanor and their comportment as their royal sibling. But, you know, they don't have the, the role, they don't have the purpose, they don't have the destiny, they don't have the sort of, you know, the rewards, essentially, of the monarch. They're just supposed to sort of support the monarch, be impeccable, and sort of live within the sovereign grant budget, which, you know, in today's world does not seem like such a big, handsome sum of money. So um, that is always going to be a hazard, and it was with Harry. But Harry was, because he went into the army, in a sense, he could hide for 10 years in the army and be f- surrounded in structure He loved the structure of the army. It kept him sort of on track because he was emotionally very, very damaged and very fragile. Things were really rough for William, too, when his mother died. But Harry, who was two years younger and much more emotionally volatile and fragile anyway by temperament, really, really didn't recover, essentially. And when he came out of the army without the structure after 10 years, he essentially fell apart. And and he's talked about it very freely. You know, he's he faced you know, panic attacks, uh, real mental challenges, a feeling of aimlessness, a feeling of anger. He really began to go to fall apart. And it was essentially after two or three years of this very difficult time that along comes Meghan Markle. And, you know, uh, yeah. I know. I want you to hold that because we're going to hit a quick break. And when we come back with Tina on the other side, we're going to get into the super juicy stuff. Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, and Prince Andrew, who, by the way, Tina, you will maybe not be surprised to know when I was growing up, I had a massive crush on Prince Andrew and I wanted to marry Prince Andrew. And I think now, Tina, you would probably agree if he had married me instead, he would not be in this fix. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. How you, but how would you be feeling? I think about to jump off a cliff. <laughs> That's also true. All right. More with Tina Brown when we come back. Her brand new It is brilliant on the British royals. It's called The Palace Papers Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil, back in a flash. And we are back with the great Tina Brown. Her brilliant new book is called The Palace Papers Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. It's a sequel of sorts to her brilliant initial bestseller on the British Royals, The Diana Chronicles, which I remain obsessed with. Okay, Tina, so let's get back to the kids because they're a lot more fun, I think, than even the Queen and Prince Charles and Camilla. Prince Harry, as you say... Uh, Mary's Meghan Markle. In my view, she is a real Jezebel. She is a wily one. She has played Prince Harry like a Stradivarius. And I want to run a theory by you. Okay. So Meghan Markle is very smart. She is a real operator. She's a very savvy observer. She does her homework. I think that she studied exactly what Princess Diana rightly complained about, the cold, unfeeling family, feeling like an outsider, never good enough, then later feeling unprotected by her husband and his family. And so her warnings and 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 Diana's warnings and pleadings for support and protection all went unheeded. And because of that, she died. Now, Meghan Markle knows all of this and very cleverly pushed all of those buttons with Harry, whom she also knows carries a lot of guilt for being so young at the time and unable to protect his mother. 
So I think Meghan Markle is playing into all of that, and that's how she got him, and that's how she continues to manipulate him. Am I right? Yes, uh, in, 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 a lot of that is true. But there was also another component that she played into, which was very much uh, a button to press, right? Um, Harriet, by the time that he met her, had really begun to resent his role. You know, second, as we were discussing, he really began to feel that his brother was hogging all the best assignments and, you know, that he was being pushed down, that his own gifts were being ignored. And he had shown that he did have gifts. He, he started uh, his own uh, charity, the Invictus Games, which was sort of his version of the Warrior Games, which is a kind of special Olympics for wounded veterans. And it was a huge howling success, which showed Harry that really he was a star. He was a star on the global stage who was being held back by the palace and by his brother's uh, su superiority in rank. So he was boiling with all of that when Meghan came along. And Meghan really wowed him because she seemed to him to be so confident, uh, so sort of together about herself, a person who was already, you know, uh, uh, claiming to be a big humanitarian, you know, someone who had done the sort of conferences and 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 appeared you know speaking about humanitarian matters as a, as a as a tv star he was wildly impressed with megan and also how she could sort of understood the savvy world of entertainment and things which he didn't know as a, as a kind of member of you know the royal family he has no idea how to kind of call big netflix and people like that he just doesn't know how to do that stuff she knew all that stuff and what she really did with harry was to reinforce with him the fact that he was a star that he could be a massive global humanitarian like his mother, and that really he had moved beyond the need for the kind of constraints of the palace platform. In other words, she and Harry together could rule the world. And that was really as much of an appeal to Harry as all of the emotional buttons that she played with, you know, the whole Diana script. How long do you think this marriage lasts? I'm giving it an additional five years tops. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. When I did my book proposal, I, 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 I betted that the whole, they'd be out of the royal family in five years and it happened in 20 months. Mm. Uh, so I don't know what the fate of this marriage is. Um, a lot of people think, oh, Harry will wake up and feel he needs to go to the pub and go back to his old friend's he's vested and bedded a lot into this marriage. And I think he has gone full on goop. He's gone full on uh, California. I mean, full on, you know, California therapy, all of that, that speak, if you know what I mean. Yes. I mean, he stunned me the other day by saying, you know, which is true, uh, that America is much more open about mental health than Britain is. And that is true and a, and a very good thing. But then he said something completely bizarre. He said, uh, here, it's all about my therapist will talk to your therapist. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, only, <laughs> only perhaps in a movie trailer in Hollywood does anybody talk like that, right? I mean, yeah. the fact is that a tremendous amount of Americans don't even have health care, plus there's patient confidentiality. It was a nutty thing to say, right? But it shows in a way how he's kind of totally bought into the whole world of Montecito kind of smoothies and 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 and. Uh, you know what I mean? He he is really bought into all of that. So whether he wakes up from that, I don't know. I tend to feel that when the queen does die, he'll have such 
FOMO about being sitting there in Montecito. You can see already they're dying to be included in the Royal Jubilee, the, you know, in the Queen's Jubilee. They're dying. They were dying to go to that big environmental conference that happened last year, where William and Kate and the and and Charles and Camilla were all invited to meet heads of state at this huge kind of UN uh, climate conference. And what they did, it was so amusing to me. They immediately issued a sort of statement, Harry and Meghan, saying that Archwell, their foundation, was going to be 100% carbon neutral in five years. It's like, what? You know, it's like they kept trying to sort of get into the conversation. And that is what they keep doing. So clearly, there's a there's a there's a sense for them that they're kind of missing out. And when when Charles, when when Harry's father becomes king, I think he's going to feel suddenly a desperate desire to kind of come back and be part of the action. Because He's not really getting much action, frankly, in, in California with her. I mean, they're now simply celebrities like everybody else in California who have to sort of rely on their entertainment success to, um, you know, to have a status. Yeah. And that's really not going anywhere either. Netflix just dropped one of her series that they had picked up that she had, had, had pitched and so on. It's really, it's fascinating that, that his behavior through all of this has really blown up his family. And Kate Middleton has been trying to broker a ceasefire with William, but it hasn't really taken. And Charles, the same thing. But also, uh, Tina, Harry's got a tell-all book coming out soon, I think, this year. And I know a lot depends on what he says in that book, but this could create a really irreparable breach, could it not? It really could. And actually, I'm told that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety about this this book and, and a real sense of anger and betrayal. They were very, very angry indeed about the Oprah interview, but there would still have been a possibility of them having kind of a reunion, you know, after six months with that. But the news that he was writing a tell-all book really has thrown uh, everyone into disarray and, and and also made them feel they can't trust anything right. uh, in terms of what they can say to Harry until they know what's in that book. Um, so there's a real trepidation and it's very sad because we now have in the Sussexes, both of them, two people who've got completely alienated families. And I think we all know that to alienate your family is never a good idea. I mean, you know, to be sitting in Montecito with their two beautiful children who've never met, you know, uh, the younger one has never has never met their grandfather or great grandmother, the queen, who, you know, they're, they're, they're out there without any contact with their multiple uh, cousins in the Windsor family. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful family for children at the moment. I mean, all of the younger royals are having their children. It's a great sort of community of children that essentially Archie and Lilibet are completely sort of cut off from there. And I think, you know, I, I think that can't ultimately be a good thing. I don't care if you're royal or not royal. That can't be a good thing. No, we're talking to Tina Brown. Her new book is called The Palace Papers. Final question, and we only have about a minute here, Tina, but uh, Prince Andrew, his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein proved fatal to his royal career. Um, is he over as a British royal? Is there any pathway back to respectability, either with the Queen or her successor, Prince Charles, or William? Look, Prince Charles, Prince Andrew is cooked. I mean, Andrew is done. You know, he... His mother is still got such a soft spot for him that while she's alive, he will continue to live in that house he has in Windsor Great Park, a stone's throw from mummy. But once she passes on, honestly, I, I don't see him getting the same kind of uh, sort of free pass from, from Charles or even more so from William, who has absolutely zero sympathy with his with his uncle. And, you know, he's the queen herself had to do something really painful, which was to strip him of all his medical, which was to strip him of all of his military honors. 
it was to essentially cancel her own son. Hugely, hugely painful for her, but she still did it to protect the crown. So Andrew's done (laughs) in answer to your question. Well, once again, I say, Tina, if he had married me instead of Sarah Ferguson, he would not be in this predicament. <laughs> Tina, this is all incredibly fascinating. And there are, I, I guarantee you there are many more twists and turns to come with the British Royals. So rest up now, Tina, because we're going to need a third and fourth volume for you from oh, you uh, with the inside Please, no. scoop. Okay. <laughs> Tina, congratulations. The book is called The Palace Papers Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. The author is the phenomenal Tina Brown. Go get it. I'm Monica Crowley, Thank back you. in a flash. Bye. You bet. Thank you, Tina. Bye. Bye. Already a phenomenal show, guys, right? I mean, this is a blockbuster show to kick off this week, and I so appreciate your being here. Send me an email to Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com, Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Also, please don't forget uh, to follow me on social media Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and on Twitter and Truth Social at Monica Crowley. All right, let's dip into the email bag, shall we? DJ writes about Friday's show. Fantastic podcast about what needs to be done with the swamp. The only reservation I have about it is if the corruption were removed, there wouldn't be much of a government left. True, DJ. True. He continues, I'm kind of pessimistic and I think the corruption starts from the bottom up or trickles from the top down. Local governments are corrupt, state governments are corrupt, and the federal government is corrupt. It's been going on for so long and is so pervasive that it's very hard to believe that anything could ever be done about it. As I said, I'm a pessimist, or maybe with age, I've just become a realist, he says. Then our friend DJ turns to our new segment, which we debuted last week, called the Complaint Department, where we go on about our pet peeves. No time today for it, but we we will take it back up. So DJ writes, regarding people who don't get back, meaning return your calls, emails, texts, I find it very easy to put them on the poo-poo list. I'm arrogant enough to think that if anyone doesn't get back to me, it's their loss. And I believe that anyone who doesn't get back to you is also on the losing end. Perhaps etiquette has become an anachronism or the definition of manners has changed in today's world. My mother was a very wise woman. And as she told me, don't take it personally. Amen, DJ. Amen. It has nothing to do with you. It's them. Thank you, DJ. Paige writes, Hi, Monica. I discovered your podcast listening to Bill O'Reilly a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank you, Paige. And guess what? I am hosting for Bill O'Reilly on his on-camera podcast today, tomorrow, and Wednesday. So I will see you there too, Paige, okay? Paige continues, I'm really enjoying your podcast. I'm a dental hygienist, and my biggest pet peeve is when people walk in 15 minutes late or later to an hour-long appointment and don't bother saying anything. Another pet peeve is when people answer their cell phone or text while I'm trying to clean their teeth. Oh my God, who does this? What kind of monster answers their phone while they're getting their teeth clean. The sense of entitlement is unbelievable today, she says. I'm a Gen Xer and was raised much like you and accepting responsibility and accountability for my actions 
and following through with my word. A fellow Republican and believer that good will prevail over evil. Amen to you, Paige, and thank you very much. I am so happy that all of you guys are enjoying this podcast so much. That means the world to me. Keep those emails coming on your pet peeves so we can all commiserate together or on anything else that's on your mind. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. All right. Don't forget Wednesday, a very important and special show. I am going to interview. I'm going to have this phenomenal conversation with Naomi Wolf, who is brilliant and brave and has been throughout this entire pandemic speaking truth to power. That is coming up on Wednesday, the Monica Crowley, Naomi Wolf interview. So do not miss it. Okay. All right, guys, have a great beginning of your week and I will see you right back here on Wednesday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.